The sun has left and forgotten me. It's dark, I cannot see. Your stories don't define you, but how you tell them will. Hi, I'm Sarah Elkins, your host and chief storymaker at Elkins Consulting. And a reminder for our listeners who are interviewing for jobs, our new course, Get Hired, Job Interview Storytelling, is available now for just $1.99, which includes the online course as well as a small group storytelling practice session. Visit elkinsconsulting.com for more information. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast for months or years, you know I always love to dive into authenticity, identity, and relevance as part of every episode. Today's guest, Jens Madsen, is a biomedical engineer and researcher at City College of New York. And I discovered his work along with his colleague, Lucas Perra, when I started research for my second book, which is about the impact of our personal narratives and the stories others tell about us on our identity, our authenticity. And I am so grateful for Yen's time today. You'll understand why as soon as we get started. Jens, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to chat with you. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> so um, I usually almost always start by asking my guests to share something about themselves that most people might not know about them, something not on your bio or your LinkedIn profile. Do you have something in your head that you could maybe share with us? I think in terms of, of my academic world um, and my, my career, you know, I, I started off as a, as a computer geek. I sat there playing all these computer games, everything. I loved it. Even when I was a little little toddler, I remember I snuck up to my parents' computers and eagerly waiting for them to be done um, uh, working with these computers so that I can, you know, have my fun time. And this is way back when uh, people didn't necessarily have, you know, everybody had a computer. Now we have smartphones, everybody has a computer. But, but back then, that wasn't the case, you know. And so I was always fascinated by computers. And when one thing that I realized is that my, my, my trajectory through the choice that I had or the choices that I made in terms of what um, occupation that I wanted to pursue or what education or sort of anything that like uh, sort of those big decisions was always driven by sort of curiosity and passion and this excitement, you know. And one thing I really noticed was like going from computer science to uh, I went into uh, acoustics, acoustical engineering. It was a fascination of sound and a fascination of music. I went into uh, studying uh, what emotions that are expressed in, in music using these AI tools. Again, just because I thought both the tools were fascinating, but also um, relating that to my personal life where I feel music pay, plays a really, really huge role. And so that combination of sort of using yourself and what means something to you and what's really sort of important to you at the same time as what like you think is fun to play with. And combining those things has always been something that's been driving me and I mean, it's been driven me all the way from, from Denmark where I grew up to uh, now living in New York City. Um, I love that. Oh my gosh, you're just speaking my language. That curiosity, music, sound, combining something that makes you enthusiastic with something else that is seemingly unrelated, like technology yeah. and how sound affects emotion. Right. <laughs> that's amazing. I love that. 
Yeah, I think, I think, I mean, one thing we do, at least what I, I do is just now I work in neural engineering. I mean, I'm in a neuroscience and, and um, one thing that we can just base all our research questions on, on all our sort of what we're interested in, in, in investigating is ourselves. Like, so I'm a, I'm a person in, in, in our environment and I'm observing myself doing all these things and reacting to these things. And these tools, music has this effect on me. Uh, narrative has effect on me. All these things. And how does that make me feel? Oh, actually, you know what? This, this does this to me. Let's, let's actually sort of make it that an official uh, question and investigate it. And oftentimes, this turns out that, you know, this by basic observation, I mean, anybody could do this, right? You can have a question and you could go out and say, let's investigate it. I just chose to make that my, my profession. Wow. I love that. It took me so long to get to this point where I realized that I could combine all those loves and curiosities. It took me into my fifties to realize that. So I so appreciate hearing it starting from such a young age, that curiosity and combining all of those interests in in a career path, which, yeah, that's, that's terrific. Well, thank you. And so you started as a computer science, yeah. um, studying computer science, and partly because you loved games. Yeah, that's computer and, yeah. <laughs> Yes, and it, it just makes me curious um, because I know that my sons both play video games, but especially my older one has always been highly affected by the music from the video games, and and that plays a huge role in how those games are perceived is what music they choose depending on the conditions and environment of the game. So I remember there was a, a old software product back uh, in the uh, early 2000s called Kid Picks. And it was basically an animation software designed for little kids. And I remember watching my son, he was maybe four years old, and he had asked me to put on kid pics and he would play a sampled song that was really sad and he'd play it over and over and over again. And one time I walked in and I saw him doing this and his head is down on his arms, like his arms are crossed on the desk, his head is down and he's just quietly like just pensive. And I said, Jacob, what are you doing? He said, just listening. And I said, that sounds like a sad song. Are you okay? He said, I like it. <laughs> and from that moment on, I knew that there was a sensitivity about him that was different. And to this day, certain games, he downloads the soundtrack so he can listen to it while he's working. So was that part of your experience with computer games? Was it about the music or like... I know I'm triggering a memory here for you. Yeah, Tell yeah. me about it. You know, I think, I think for me in the beginning, computers were just, you know, um, the curiosity of, of um, the way that you formalize things, structure things. I think, and you have a structured mind that I like to um, sort of think about uh, a problem as not just um, one big problem, but try to um, sort of, uh, put and, and sort of uh, try to um, reduce these problems to smaller problems that then we can solve, right? 
And that way of thinking is very much like a computer. To computers, you have all the different parts and you know the different function and you know what they're supposed to do. Even when you write code, it's the same thing. It's just the way of thinking of, well, this is not deal with the whole problem of, let's say, making a game. You need to have, okay, you have to have an interface, you have to have, uh, you have to have like, some graphics, you have to have some gameplay, some mechanics, you have to have you know, the sound and music and all those things, right? I think that was that, that's what fascinated me. In terms of the musical and emotional component, I think I'm just, maybe as, as you were saying, a sensitive person. I, I don't really know what that means in, in terms of, because I think um, at least we, um, I think we all are, and we, we just have to allow ourselves to be that it's and and you know say this is okay and and i mean the function of music oftentimes in our early age you know there if you do these meta surveys like there's been a bunch of these meta surveys asking people what what function does music serve in your life why do you have it why? i mean there's many many there's a whole evolutionary kind of uh, the cheesecake kind of um analogy where you can say what function does it where does it come from from a visionary perspective because let's just ask people why do you have it and one of the most common questions uh, some answers to that question is that music regulates our emotional state right so it has that ability so if you sit there and even though you sit there and and, and listen to something sad it doesn't necessarily have to make you sad but it can introduce you to an emotion that is expressed through this piece of music and and sort of you can learn oh this is what that feeling feels like and uh, you know that's not necessarily a bad thing it's not bad to to feel sad it's not bad to feel happy you know and i think music can at least in its very early ages can introduce us to um to these emo different emotional experiences emotional emotions in general you know and i think that's important um and another aspect of course music in adolescence is uh we listen to it to sort of um just figure out who you are sort of very it's through the lyrics, you know, uh, people are expressing different uh, thoughts and ideas and emotions. And, you know, that's like a, a very safe space, at least in terms of emotional expression, you feel safe and you can hear what these people are talking about. Um, there's other factors, but I think for me, at least, you know, I listen to a lot of music, even sad and happy in an early age. Um, and I've done it ever since. Now I basically use it as a tool. I use it as a tool to regulate my emotional state. I have music that when I sit there and I code, when I do my engineering, I put music on. You know, when I, um, not always. Silence is also beautiful. I need to have you know room with my own thoughts. But music can be uh, used as a tool, and and I think some people are more aware of it than others. And also, it's not that music has this universal appeal to everyone that it just regulates everybody's emotional state. No, for some people, it's just like a background music thing, and it's nice. But other people you know, a little bit more invested in it. Um, Is that similar to, so I was reading your article about how um, when we experience a story together, our heartbeats start to fluctuate in synchronicity. Mm -hmm. And when I read that, I dove in a little deeper into that because I was so curious. It's not that our heartbeats are in sync, but that they fluctuate in sync. So when my heart rate goes up, your heart rate goes up, maybe at different levels, but it's that fluctuation that's the same. Um, but the one thing that was very specific was you have to be paying attention. So if you have yeah. an audience of 100 people and only 40 of you are actually paying attention, not on your phones, not thinking about work, but um, actually paying attention to the story being told, that's when it works. 
And um, music is the same way, right? So if a person is listening to it as background and they're not aware of it, is that the difference? Yeah. I think, I mean, you can you can think of it as as a narrative story has uh, very low level physical properties, like the speech that comes this come out of not, not in terms of semantics or what it actually means, but just the low levels. I mean, it's making a sound up and down. You can make my, you know, my, my mouth is shaping, you know, to make my, all these wonderful uh, formats and all of it. my glottal posts. So our physiology, to a certain extent, follows that, but not to, I mean, not a lot. And then you have a higher level, which is the, the, sort of the meaning of it, right? So this is basically the, the narrative of the semantics uh, or whatever you have of that narrative or the, uh, the piece of music that will drive sort of higher order uh, vertical uh, processes. And these then have an effect on our physiology. Like um, you have this fluctuation of the heart rate. So you have this parasympathetic or sympathetic uh, nervous system that's sort of pushing and pulling our rate of heart, right? And so what we're measuring is that people's heart rates, if they're paying attention and you know to the actual narrative or the piece of music, then our heart starts fluctuating in synchrony. Um, a lot of people think, oh, so now our hearts like start to do exactly beating at the same time that's not the case no it's the the rate of the fluctuation mm-hmm. wow that's so cool so what made you decide i you started with music studying how music affects our emotional being and and yeah. our physiological states what made you decide to then shift and understand that stories can have a similar effect right i think um when I when I studied uh, during my PhD, and, um, I, I was in a more computer science environment where we design these algorithms and everything, you know, to, to figure out what emotions are expressed in music. And I think uh, at that point in time, we're wondering, well, so what are we what are we going to use this for? We're going to make a new Spotify where you can search for happy jazz or sad rock, whatever. But what I mean, that's the, the question we came up. What purpose does music actually? serving people's lives and, and then the idea well well not the idea i mean it's a, it's a fact that people use to regulate your emotional state and and so if you want to sort of and the idea came up that we, we sort of coined a music as medicine so like how can we administer music to potentially regulate your emotional state so that maybe we can we don't have to use so many um pharmaceuticals or, or <laughs> whatever right i mean that could be a very nice non-invasive just treatment here's some music and then you feel better <laughs> listen to this <laughs> yeah listen to this and like oh that made me happy like or that like i don't know stop my rumination or you know like allowed me to regulate my emotional state so that it brings me into a, 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 a state where I'm, I'm more comfortable talking about whatever traumatic experience whatever so a lot of different things that we thought about so how can we measure how people feel and so I would need I needed to know something about physiology, the brain, the whole body, right? How do I how do I get that? And then I got this job offer here in uh, City College, although it's about online education, which is something entirely different. But nonetheless, it's still within the biomedical you know uh, field and neural engineering. So you know there's a possibility at least to learn the tools. Um, and and of course I have this interest in music. And so and so the, the projects that we sort of worked on was about online education. So how can we track um, what people are paying attention to? Um, and we started that with, with the brain. 
But in online educational setting, it's not really like practical. If you have to attend a course, you have to bring wear a, a cap every single time. So we thought about something less invasive. So the idea was, well, we can do eye movements, right? So we can track people's eye movements and see whether or not they're paying attention in class um, or doing video lectures. Um, but it's still, you have to have a webcam. We, we did with webcam, so like we do a webcam eye tracking, but it's still a little bit less, I mean, it's not super, it's not, you know, super accurate or easy to less invasive. Right. And right. so the heart rate came up, the well, heart rate, a lot of people actually wear these heart rate monitors. Right. Um, and maybe we can sort of go there, which makes it even more accessible. Right? And so, and so we, we, we sort of went in that direction. Um, well, I did anyway, <laughs> I, I was very, I was very fond of all these physiological signals. I don't think my, uh, my superiors were that fond of it, but I didn't. You weren't that interested. <laughs> no, I mean, the brain is, you know, the, the Holy grail and then everything else is a little, I don't know. It's secondary. Yeah, exactly. I think, uh, it lights switch on that one. So, yeah. So, well, I mean, we did that, uh, about the narrative and the heart rate. I, I mean, initially it was very much from, a of online educational or educational setting. Um, so this is a case where people watch these um, videos um, or listen to narratives. I'm just finishing up a paper now about how auditory narratives, um, sort of stories where people, they tell about how they met their love, which <laughs> for me is like, uh, I love it. <laughs> just the perfect stimuli. I'm a sucker for anything that's in romantic or anything like that. So it was perfect. But there we look at it, like the heart and all that. And like, how can we, which parts of the narrative is it also that uh, apparently we're, it's attracting our attention. Oh, so you're a romantic. <laughs> yeah. When, that, well, that drives so much of what you do in terms of emotion and being sensitive, you described yourself as sensitive, like my son. And I, when I think about, a, I don't have a strong definition for a sensitive person. I know there is one um, within the psychiatric psychology world of highly sensitive person. But when I talk about a sensitive soul, I think about somebody who, who is, their emotions are, um, easier to experience or to see they make their emotions are more obvious to me and I don't consider myself a particularly sensitive person because I don't uh, it's just not a surface for me and I love that you found something that really feeds that part of you as opposed to so many especially men have a tendency to hide that side and not want to show it and some fear of appearing weak. And I, I look at my son who doesn't have that fear and he's he's so warm and compassionate and loving. So I'm seeing so much of what you're talking about in, in my son and it just is, it's warming me up. I don't know if you can see that, but <clears throat> so where, where was a time or when was an experience you had where you realized that this was really important to you like maybe it was when you were watching um the interactions among people in an audience or when you got to share what your research was and somebody was like me getting all excited about it when was a recent experience where you got to do that where you had that opportunity to to feel the impact of what you were doing 
I think that there's two, there's two situations. One is one of the more sort of, um, I don't know how phrase it, but like a very low level sort of impact. So I, I do these experiments and people that don't realize that, of course, when we do these eight articles, we have all these small dots on all these plots, but it turns out that every single dot is, you know, when we do like whatever plot trying to show that the heart rate, uh, the symphony of heart rate is modulated by tension, each of those dots is a person. Right? And so I, I'm i there with that person, you know, bring them in, welcome them in, we even did that through COVID, we did, we did all these measurements on, right? And, and one thing that, you know, they come in, I can give a little introduction in the beginning, sort of, because they're very nervous about it. When they enter the room, they're super nervous. They're like, oh, I'm, what are you going to do? Gonna happen? You know, <laughs> what's going to happen? You know, they see this, this, this box they have to sit in, you know, because we do these experiments in isolation. There's no social interaction. In, 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 we, we, you could do that. We just don't do it just because we want to sort of be sure that we don't have any social uh, component. I'm still open to, to look into that component, but that's not what we've done so far. Um, and people go in there and I have to put all these sensors on people, right? I have to put the cap on, I have to put all these things. And people are very insecure about the body, what their body is maybe is doing, the, the brain signals, their heart rate. I hope not, I hope my brain is not like freaky, weird, different, or my is my head shaped like uh, is it big, small, because I have to put a cap on people when we measure people's brain waves, or just in general, like is everything okay? You know, like these people are very worried. And one thing I can tell them that is it's I mean, we're literally uh, measuring what how similar your responses are to that of other people. I can tell you that you're remarkably similar. I mean, it, the way that we respond to things, people have all these thoughts on this thing. Maybe I'm doing something wrong. Maybe when I see this narrative, I hear the speech, all these things, I'm probably the only one that has those thoughts or the, those ideas or anything like that, right? I can just tell people, no, 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 no. <laughs> Listen, you are remarkably similar to other people, not trying to re remove their sort of their identity. Individuality, right? individuality i'm not going there at all because there's plenty of variation but there's a lot of things that are also very very similar uh, between us right and even you know we have all i mean here at city college being in new york city we're up on the um northern part of, the, of manhattan right and just the people that we, we have coming in and doing these experiments there's it's all shapes and sizes uh, you know age uh whatever gender, you name it, any parameter you can kind of tweak, they're there, right? And people are still remarkably similar. And that I think, at least when I tell that to people, they, I don't know, I, I feel like they leave in the like sort of more, um, sort of this more, I don't know, reassured, you know, because we are humans. That's what we are. <laughs> you know, we're not that different. And I think at least that makes me, makes me, makes me smile. I feel like you have somebody in mind, like a particular person, that you said that to oh i've said it to many people yes I mean, trust but, me this is but not I just know. <laughs> i i speak to many people and many podcast guests but when somebody asks me a question like that one person comes to mind like uh, yeah. or three people so who's that one person that popped into your head that you were visualizing when you told the story i i, I had a I had a, um, a girl coming in and she was very shy super shy also because you know i'm i'm, I'm a man Right, which is always already there breaks you know oh, it's, it's a man awkwardness, it this right. it's awkwardness even for me i've done this a hundred times you know like when you go to the doctor you just sweep through things you know and i remember even putting because we have to measure how big people's heads are she just got so 
no, you can't do that. No, 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 I don't want you to know how big my head is. I'm like, I don't, it's not a big thing. So I had to like sort of explain it to myself and show, hey, this is how big my head is. You see, this is the cap that's supposed to go there. Um, I brought like another person in showing this is how it's done. And I can just see um, and explaining all the different anatomies. And I use myself as an example because, you know, I have different bumps in my skull too. And people can feel that on themselves. We have a little bump in the back of our heads. Um, it's called the Indian, which we use to use keycaps. E- e- and I just kind of had to show her, hey, listen, I have a bump here. You have a bump there. This is what we're using. And this is an anatomical markers. And this just happens all the time. And you can just see sort of that level of anxiety so slowly going down just because just explaining this is this is entirely normal, you know. Um, and and I those situations and I've, I've done it before where we have some of our research assistants uh, coming in and they just go straight to, to, to the, to the, just get it on, put the sensors on, do all these things. And you can see them. They're just so freaked out. Um, and, and I think, I don't know, maybe you've done it with, when you've gone to a doctor, you know, uh, or a specialist or something where you feel like this person does not know how to interact with people. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Does that change the results though? I mean, if they start out so stressed out, that has to, at least the, the impact of that has to impact the very first part of the study until yeah, they get so, into a rhythm. Yeah. I think, I mean, a big part of it is bringing, uh, bringing people from whatever state they came in to that sort of relaxed state. What we can see is that when people enter you know, their resting heart rate. So this is what people usually, when they think about heart rate, the resting heart rate, or just the, the heart rate in general, actually varies quite a lot. So we have some people that have a super high heart rate, heart rate just pumping away because, you know, my, either they're smaller people or just or, or children or um, um, younger, I mean, we don't bring children in, um, mm-hmm. um, or, or, or larger people or just more nervous or whatever. Right. And so we can see that that rate is, 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 is very different, but, but the, the modulation of the heart rate does not, is not seemingly as this is the results we're getting is not affected by that. So you still see that the heart rate goes up and down, up and down. And that is still in synchrony, despite the fact that you have heart higher elevated or lower. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you can still pay attention, even though you're nervous and you can also not pay attention if you're nervous. Mm-hmm. Well, I love that story about the young woman coming in and being, so scared and and you're describing what was going to happen and showing her on your own head. And part of what resonates with me about that story is that I can't tell you how many of my clients or my podcast guests have said these words, I never really fit in. Right. And if out of 260 interviews, like 200 of them say that, what does that say for our communities? (laughs) Nobody ever really fits in, I guess, or at least a very few of us. So um, I love that you are demonstrating that. I, I think it's significant, really, that you can demonstrate that this is, that, that there's comfort in being similar to others in some ways. I mean, we, we all yeah. want to be unique. We all want to stand out in our own ways. But at the same time, there's comfort in knowing that I'm in good company that what I'm experiencing in my internal dialogue is nonstop, <laughs> that I'm not the only one with that nonstop internal dialogue. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's something. It's it's a it's a field that we're we're really uh, interested in right now. It's, it's daydreaming, daydreaming, because we're we're measuring attention, right? So when you are there talking in front of a big audience and you want to captivate your audience, you want to just keep their attention all the time. It and and it turns out that maybe this is not necessarily um, the right way to go. I don't know if the right or wrong. It's maybe a wrong way of phrasing it, but um, well, it, it may not have. Way, it may not have the impact that you want it to have. Exactly. I mean, it's like when I'm speaking, I pick out three things maximum, depending on how long the, the speech is, three things I want people to remember. And everything I say is to bring those three points to some clarity in a person's head. But if I'm trying to entertain and keep them engaged for a full 25 minutes or an hour, even worse, they're only going to remember one of those things. Yeah. No, my, my point is that, you know, we are developing tools that at least in, in this setting can measure whether or not you're paying attention or not. And you can't just optimize for that, meaning that you have to have the highest amount of attention constantly all the time, because then people sit there and you're like, you know, <laughs> the listeners can't see it, but I'm opening my eyes. You know, like you have to have like a sort of um, Orwellian kind of uh, perspective. Right, it, right, which is frightening. <laughs> <laughs> just so that's not the that's not the, you know you you can't just you know if you see people you know not necessarily being fully attentive you can't just you know force them to do it and so at least what we're seeing is that this this daydreaming or the cycles of, of attention you're you're paying attention see the people are paying attention and then you say something that maybe people should reflect on or at least sort of start starts resonating something you need to you know consolidate or whatever or or just in general just put that in perspective in, in, in terms of your own life. And that's important. So you can't just, when people start zoning out at that point in time, just say, uh, no, 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 but see me, see me, see me, see me. No, no, no. There is a cycle. And just the fact that people are seemingly swaying attention in and out, in and out, is not necessarily a, 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 a sign of, of you being a, a bad speaker or a bad um, uh, narrator or whatever. That makes so much sense. And the application for all of this work, one of the things I read was um, that some of this study was done on people who are patients, medical patients who are unresponsive or mostly unresponsive. And it wasn't just their heart rates you were watching as a story was being told, but somebody else in the room, I think this is what I got from it, so that you could tell whether there was the social connection. Was that no, what I, think I read? What you can do is, and this is a remarkable thing, you can simply have a person in, in whatever geographical position, right, and record their heart rate or whatever physiological signal you want when they listen to the story. The story. You need a time alignment so you know that this, this, this beat was exactly when this, this was set. Right? So you have right. to time align these recordings. Now I can do that and I can make another recording somewhere else and another one and another one. Right? And you can compare these across the world and you can tell by comparing one person's heart rate to that of the other people that you recorded, whether or not that person was paying attention or not. Okay. And you can do the same thing with um, uh, patients of, of, of consciousness or, or at least on the spectrum of consciousness. This is the problem. People don't right. talk about coma or you know, people are awake. I mean, right. it's, it's, a, it's a whole spectrum, right? Um, and 
And in those settings, you know, you can still record people's uh, their heart rate and compare that to a healthy cohort. Right? So, or healthy, I don't know, you mean that word means, but a conscious person, right? Conscious right. people, right? And you can compare and see how similar is that person to that cohort of conscious people. And the, the more similar they are, the more likely that they are going to, uh, you know, get out of that, uh, that state. Uh, they, wow. And that so, was and so that, that really is amazing. Yeah, and, and and so it's 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 a very common thing. Um, so a lot of studies have done these these kinds of things where you know you have a social component. So essentially, you sit there a whole group of people. Let's say you you pay attention to some sort of narrative, a person on on the stage or or music or whatever, like some sort of similar, right? And you can record that, and you can see that people's hearts start synchronizing. We just showed that the social component is not necessarily uh, is not um, necessary. It's not a necessary condition mm-hmm. for uh, our hearts to synchronize. Meaning that this narrative, at least the narrative, is a strong component in driving these hearts. So you can you don't have to be around people. Now, of course, there might be some synergies. There might be some other effects happening that could change or increase uh, this synchrony. When, when we are doing that in a social setting, um, we just wanted to be sure that we have sort of the basics. We don't have to be together, and then we can, we can start looking into other, uh, other things as well after that. Is that what's next, where you actually get people in the same room to do this? Because that I mean, is really appealing to me. <laughs> yeah, I would love it. You know, I'm a, I'm a young researcher, and, you know... I, this is this this is the, the, the little sometimes it's a little frustrating that you have all these questions and these excitement you know a lot of people that are excited about it but you just need the funding to do it and so you go out there and you figure out okay where can I get this money and it's a long process of a lot of work it takes months and months and months um and so yeah I would love that I would love to to sort of dig into both musical experiences but also uh, narratives and things like that it, it's a it's a big field um, yes. We are working with different um, different things we're working on is the, the, the brain-body interaction. So how the brain is communicating with the body and, ho- and, and sort of looking a little bit more into what's happening both through narratives, but how, how is that different to, let's say, everyday, everyday tasks and, 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 and how does that change over development and things like that. So those are the things that we're interested in right now. So the heart-brain connection. Yeah. Sure. Or... or I mean, it's a weird. It, our body is just fascinating. It, 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 it's like a, it's, it's so complicated. Mess. It's so complicated, right? <laughs> and you, every single time you poke at a little thing over there, you see like all these other things. So we just so. found out, you know, that our breathing has an influence on our pupils. You know, um, our eye movements can modulate our heart rate. Yeah, you know, all these weird things that are happening. We just need to figure out what's going on. Well, and beyond that, what I hear from you that really um, endears you to me and the research you're doing is the application of it. You're you're seeing the potential for improving things for people. The first thing we talked about was being able to use music or narrative storytelling to help deal with depression or addiction or PTSD. Um, how do I process these emotions in a safe way that doesn't include pharmaceuticals? And so yeah. when when you think about your body of research so far, I know you have 
so much ahead of you that just I want to follow. I just want to kind of be a little <laughs> fly on the wall for your career and research. Yeah. But in your body of research so far, what is something that you see serious application in, in terms of people's lives, the satisfaction and health in the people around you? Because you have that sensitive soul. I know this matters to you. Yeah, it does. It, 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 you're right. And it, it's, it's, it's a funny thing you, you sort of identified because, you know, I'm, I'm so affected by the emotional state of my my. My surroundings that you know i just genuinely want everybody to be happy and feel good so how can i you know how can i do that contribute one way of course is is sharing just the story about how similar we are right um or what it is that uh, sort of somehow attracts our attention and what effects does that have on us you know um i would love i mean i, I kind of put the whole emotional research thing a little bit on the side just because it didn't really fit thematically um into the the project I got hired in, but now that I'm sort of progressing through my career, I, I want to go back to that um, and and sort of you know potentially develop tools to to teach emotional intelligence, which is a tricky thing. But but you know if we can actually go there, I think a lot of a lot of different dis disorders or problems people are having is just that right. It, it's the, the dealing with our emotional state. Um, um, and just the feeling that we're, maybe we're alone, we're, you know, just this idea that we're alone and we're these people that are just this, uh, I don't know, so different from everybody else. And like, I'm the only one having these thoughts and these feelings like, no, we're, we all have them. This is talk about it. You know, this is totally fine to talk about. Um, and so I think both, both in terms of, of my research, I really want to go back to looking into the, the effects uh, of of the, our emotional uh, both expression and uh, internal emotional state um, into um, how we perceive the world and how we um, how maybe that changes things a little bit um, and it loose, sort of at least loosening up those knots about how how different or how similar we are in our experiences. I want to go in that direction. Um, so development is something I'm really interested in. And so how um, the brain-body uh, connection, and how we perceive the world, and we can sort of look into that using um, naturalistic uh, stimuli uh, and naturalistic behavior. So oftentimes in neuroscience, you see a lot of results and a lot of uh, headlines. And when you start digging down into the method section of the paper, you, you see, oh, um, so this experience was actually done, like let's say, in an fMRI scanner. I mean, it's a remarkable tool. You get really nicely detailed uh, pictures of where in the brain things are, are you know, happening, but it's also in a big tube that's very noisy. And you know, you, you lie there, and then you have to lie still and listen to the music or watch these things. And maybe that's not necessarily a real very life. Real life. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that's not how I usually hang out and watch a movie. And maybe my behavior and my reactions would actually be changed by that fact, right? And the social interactions of watching a movie together. Right, that too. For sure. Um, and another aspect is, you know, a lot of the stimuli that people have used also in the past has been, you know, we, we need to figure out this very specific mechanism in the brain. So we, in order for us to tease that apart, we cannot do like a bunch of different sequences or different types of stimuli. Let's say we're going to show a lot of dots, some other dots and some third dots and some blinking ones, some gradients, some, some flashes, some noise, whatever, all these different types of stimuli where we can really 
map out all these things, which I think is remarkable. And this is, you know, all the knowledge that we're sort of leveraging and sort of you know, digging deeper. But what I'm more interested in is do these things still happen when we are in a natural setting, just everyday life, you know, just, you know, doing what I'm, I would usually do and not restrict that behavior and also engaging with some, 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 I mean, in our case, I mean, it would be wonderful if we can just, you know, go through um, an everyday life and have all the sensors on. The problem, at least the challenge with that kind of research is uh, replication. Um, so how can you replicate that mm-hmm. situation? Well, you didn't really know whether or not the reason why your heart started to synchronize or your heart did this or your pupils did that or your brain, that was because of this thing over here. Let's say the, the, the tea kettle, you know, is starting to, to, to make a sound or, you know, you hear a clock on the radio, uh, all these kinds of things, you don't really know what it is. So when we use sort of what we call naturalistic stimuli, maybe recording of a story or a podcast, and we can play this podcast with people, you know, <laughs> um, you know there at least it's, 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 a, it's a thing, it's an activity that we do all the time. You know, it's an activity where, you know, this is not something that is, is very wildly um, uncommon listen to stories or listen to music or or watch uh, videos of YouTube or a movie or whatever. And so the combination of those two things that we want to people to be, a- be able to at least behave somewhat naturally and also present them with things that are at least a, a very natural thing in our daily lives, I think it also will sort of uh, bring neuroscience a lot of knowledge about how it is that we function in our everyday lives. Mm-hmm. And I think at least for neuroscience and at least for my career, that's where we're going. And I'm really excited about it um, because there's a lot of things that we still don't know. Um, well, so I think that would have an effect. I know that in the last 25 years, a lot has changed in terms of understanding the elasticity of our brains. And that changes everything as well. I mean, you could study and find out all the different parts of your brain that light up given a certain circumstance. And then if one part is damaged, your brain still may be able to process certain stimulants because it has rewired itself. So I think it's forever studying, but what I love about what you're doing is the potential for helping the potential for guiding people to process their own emotions in different ways. And, and that the treatments that could come. I know when I was in school, I'm not going to tell you what year it was, but my mm-hmm. first couple of years of college, um, I thought I might go into music therapy because I knew that there was a lot of research around the impact of music and treatment on people with Alzheimer's. And my grandfather had just been diagnosed. So I was really considering going into that field. So one of the things that popped into my head a few things did, obviously. <laughs> this big, long internal dialogue going, no, I'm kidding. Um, no, what I was... <laughs> it's perfectly fine. I mean, they yes. have them, and it's a very normal thing. And yes. again, it's not an unnormal, uncommon thing to have long internal dialogues. <laughs> we all do it, I can tell you. Yes. This is how it is. <laughs> but I was really focused on what you were saying about... Um, well, there were a few things. One thing was... Um, if we all had sensors on us, that may change our behavior anyway. That's the whole Schrodinger's cat thing. Like if you're being observed, is that going to change you? Um, That was the first thing that popped into my head. The second thing that popped into my head was the idea of the social context of the impact of stories and narrative, because I can't tell you how many times 
I've been at a concert and a total stranger next to me, we, we had to hug after hearing a song, right? Like it's just, it's so powerful, that social context. And so I'm excited and eager to see how you find ways to measure that, especially again, coming back to the application on maybe people who are on that spectrum of consciousness to be able to put people in the room with them and see if that changes things for how their heart responds to music or story. And then the last thing that popped into my head was all the research going on at Western Washington University on personal narrative. Um, There's a team researching how stories about children affect their identity, even pre-verbal stages. When you tell stories about your kids in front of your kids, what that does to their identity as they grow. And then Kate McLean, Dr. Kate McLean is studying the, the teen, late teen years of understanding how those narratives can cause conflict in relationships because I may tell a story about my 17-year-old kid that I tell consistently, but if that story contradicts with how that 17-year-old sees himself in the future and his identity, then I've created this conflict. And so, so my brain is firing on all cylinders right now. I don't know how I'm going to calm down after this. But Jens, <laughs> this is this has been so fascinating. I want to go more into it, but I know that we're running out of time. So let's just come full circle back to what you do and the the beauty of what you're finding in your work. If you could kind of wrap that into a short story or a sentence, what would that be? At first, I have to sort of comment on one thing you said, because it's something that I've observed um, about my own enjoyment of of a narrative or an experience. Uh, you must know this when you are in front of an audience and you have an audience that sits there and just does nothing, right? You sit there and you just sit there and, you know, there's no reactions. You keep Ouch. on talking and like nothing. Just, <laughs> yes. You can't even get anything out of these people. And you're wondering what what's going on in their heads. <laughs> that even happened when I was singing one time. I would finish a song. There's no clapping. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, can they hear me? Is this thing on? <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> well, that's more at the end of the, the experience, right? right? When you're in it, right? When you're in it, I mean, uh, I, I, me as an audience, because now I, I've been on the stage and I know how it is when you sit there and you have no reaction from people at all. And I don't know why people don't do it if they're not interested or they're not comfortable like, expressing themselves. But what I have found is that when people are expressive, somehow, sitting there nodding or smiling or hmm, or just in general, just, you know, somehow show a little bit of engagement. It feels remarkable as a speaker. And so me as a, as an audience member, you know, I do the same thing. I, it's, it's almost like I kind of like sit there. Wow. Yeah. You know, I kind of just, because I, I want to be engaged and I can see that person looking at me like, thank you. <laughs> you know, like it's giving me some feedback. And, and, and when I'm at a concert, you know, you can have those, concerts where you go in and you just love this band where you bring your friend and that praying friend does not know this band at all and this friend will look at you like oh you like this you know and you can feel <laughs> you can or like anybody around you judgment you feel, wow <laughs> this experience is just becoming way worse just because of of of, of your surroundings right 
But if you are in, a, in there, we just are around like-minded people. They just love this band, you know, and just, wow. And as you said, you hug people and you start dancing and you just have this full, like this expression of uh, feelings and emotions because people are comfortable doing that. Because we have this shared experience of this thing we love. Um, I think that's deeply fascinating. That behavior is deeply fascinating how our experiences are also shaped by our surroundings and, and just even the way we think, you know, if you have like a group of friends that are somehow opinionated by something, maybe you're more inclined to think that's the right direction. I think that, I think that all those aspects and our peers, like as you're saying as a teenager, if you, if you tell a story that somehow, you know, potentially guide them in some direction, um, it, it just has this uh, sort of um, ability to, to shape uh, how we think and how we feel and and where we might end up. And I think at least, yeah, I had to comment on that because I, I find it deeply fascinating. Yes. Um, so you're, you're sorry, your question. I, you, <laughs> well, you, you know kind of just answered it. You kind of just answered it. And I'll, okay. I'll say this, when when you spoke about being in the audience and participating with the speaker or participating with the musician or how it affects you when somebody next to you doesn't like what you like and how it changes the experience for you in a pretty negative way. If our audience takes nothing else away from this conversation, I hope they'll take that part away that when somebody is on the stage in front of you or speaking at a workshop or whatever, that if you really want to get something out of it, engaging with them simply by smiling at them or nodding your head, asking a question will make that experience even better for you and everyone in the room. I'm, it, it, it's overwhelming because I, I've been a, a speaker where, you know, I had the people sort of actively engaging and I had conversations with them after because I feel like, wow, your, your energy is amazing. First of all, thank you. You know, just they were they were really interesting. Maybe not super a lot, but but still, that that conversation after you know it brought me uh, perspectives that I didn't even think uh, at, at all. And just opening that window to having that conversation um, and breaking down that barrier you sometimes have as a speaker and then the audience. You know, because I I come from a country, I come from Denmark, where our social hierarchy is just pretty flat in general so we don't really like this whole oh, doctor this professor that um and so i i really enjoy bringing everything down to a level uh field where you just talk about things that are not, nothing stupid to say stupid questions don't exist in that sense it's just because i need to communicate or teach you about this thing um and and so i think that at least has 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 being a speaker has helped me a lot to be a sort of an active audience. Yes, completely agree. I, I know that performing as a musician changed the way that I see musical performances for sure. And, and same with speakers. And every story you've told, every sentence out of your mouth has demonstrated the kind of researcher you are. And I've, as an engaged audience member, I can't even... I don't think I can express how much I appreciate the work that you're doing and whatever I can do to help spread the information that you're learning in your research. Um, I'm, I'm in 100% and I'm guessing my <laughs> listeners will be as well. 
I mean, it, it's funny that just as in the, during this conversation, we made an observation about how we as people react. Like we just had this conversation. I've talked about this before, but I never really formalized it as a research project. I think I just came up with a research project. I want to investigate this, you know? I want to investigate you know, both of those aspects about the active audience and about what the change of experience is uh, based on your peers and, and how does that change how we see things. So Uh-oh. this is, I love these conversations <laughs> because you get all these ideas, you know? Like this is the wonderful thing about science because science is not something that's like this weird sort of, planet somewhere else then you could look at these people like right. oh yeah science does this or i don't believe in science or not i don't understand this this concept it's just basic observations I and mean, we just try to see if it's true or not or if it's only sort of very anecdotal right and i would say that the difference between your research and some others that i've seen in the past is that yours comes from a place of not just curiosity about what happens when or what if i or why does this happen? It also comes from a place of how can we use this information to improve somebody's life, to, to help them, guide them to find more satisfaction, more emotional well-being, more emotional intelligence. Thank you, Dr. Goldman. <laughs> but um, that's, that's what I've loved about our conversation is that it all comes from a foundation of deep care for others. Yeah. And I think a lot of people miss that when they're looking at research or some researchers miss it, but you don't miss it. And I'm so grateful for that. Yeah, it, it, it's it's um, it's not something that I, I talk about during any, uh, any basic scientific or any other forum, forum for that matter. Um, Really, uh, it's like more of a personal conversation, you know, and which I don't know, it, it's, it's a little tricky. It very much depends on the scientific or environment you're, you're in. Um, but, you know, just, I, 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 that's just who I am. And that's like this sort of deeply rooted in me that I can't. You know, well, that's a good thing. <laughs> right. And, and, and caring about other people, it's just, you know, it, and, and the best way we can. I mean, I always had this perspective, uh, you know, that we're, we're, we're human, we're human beings, we're a human race, we're on this planet, and we need to sort of work together to make uh, everything better. <laughs> That's like, I don't really care if I win, if I ever lose, it's, it's kind of, it, it kind of sucks. So, you know, I kind of just want to do the best that I can with the tools and the, the, whatever uh, uh, that I've developed, or I have, the ability I have to make uh, by people's better, uh, people's lives better. And that's, wow. I think, I mean, that's all, we, that's all we can do, all of us, I think. Agreed. Right? Yes, totally agree. Jens, if people want to get in touch with you or follow you or see more of your research, where do they go? Um, I have a webpage, um, jensmadsen.com, or you would say jensmadsen.com. I have to uh, always <laughs> translate it to the American Pronounced accent. with a Y, but spelled with a J. Yeah, I know, right? Mm-hmm. It's just one of those things. It's the Northern European name. Well, that's um, how I was so pronouncing can... it first. And that's actually how I pronounced it. I think I pronounced it when I spoke at that uh, keynote last week. But sorry, go ahead. No, that's totally fine. So you can go there. Um, and um, I can send you my email address as well. It's, it's mm-hmm. very effective to contact me there. Um, on my webpage, I also have a link to um, my uh, Twitter 
where I use. I don't use my LinkedIn that much. Um, maybe other people do. Um, so yeah, Twitter or I email the, uh, the best. Great. And listeners, you don't need to pause this or anything. It will, all of this information will be in the show notes associated with this podcast at elkinsconsulting.com. So thank you, Jens, for joining me today on the Your Stories Don't Define You podcast. And friends, now it's your turn. What story have you been telling that may have been creating a negative perception about you? And what stories can you share that will demonstrate the beauty of the people and the environment around you? What resources do you need to make sure that you are telling the right stories and listening to the music that will connect you with the people around you? Thanks for listening. Smile, what's the use of crying? You'll find that life is still worthwhile. If you just smile